So as Dan mentioned, we're, we're concluding this morning with our, our last sermon in the uh, brief series on covenant theology. Um, if you recall where we've been so far in thinking of theological covenants, and they intersect and they're manifest in the biblical story through biblical covenants, um, and, and you think of those covenants that we looked at, um, you can think of the Abrahamic covenant, the God's covenant with Abraham. You can think of uh, the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah. You can think of his binding relationship with, 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 uh, with David. Um, you can think of uh, Israel's covenant uh, with God. Uh, you'd speak of the, uh, the, the, the new covenant of, of Jeremiah. You, so, so you see these biblical covenants throughout the story that are that, that, that binding, that, that glue to the redemptive story. That there's a context to the good news. And the context of that good news is covenant. So that when, in, in your life in Christ, you, you come to not simply the Lord's Supper. Indeed, that is the institution of the Lord's Supper. But, but, but what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? But a, a covenant meal. That's why he says this is the blood of the covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So your entire life which was the beginning of this series, uh, um, the conviction is that your life in the Lord is is a covenantal one. There's a binding relationship that he through grace, if if your faith does rest upon Christ, the, 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 the son and head of the covenant, if your faith rests upon him um, and you're in union to him, he is your covenant Lord. And he has bound himself to you irrevocably. And then he gives you signs and seals of the truth of that covenant in baptism and in the supper. This ongoing covenantal renewal. But, it, but it's that sense, of the, the conviction of the, the, the gospel, the good news, comes to you in the context of kind of unraveling a scroll. The, the good news is read to you on this covenantal role, on this covenantal structure. But then there's these theological covenants that, 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 that serve as the infrastructure of the Bible, and they are what we've looked at for the last few weeks. These, these theological covenants, the covenant of works with Adam and Eve and, the, and God and the garden, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace that we looked at, and the covenant with God and Abraham and the church and the covenant of grace. And then the last covenant that we're looking at, and then we're going to conclude this morning, we've looked at it uh, one other time, but the final sermon and the final installment in our series on the theological covenants this morning is our second part of understanding the covenant of redemption. So if I could, by way of um, remembrance for us as we kind of kick things off, as I said, I'm going to land the plane of the entire series this morning. So I have a lot of ground to cover, but I seek to be helpful. So, so, so by way of renewal or rehearsing um, and remembrance, uh, to put it simply like this, to kind of get the ball rolling and get those, those engines firing once again, because I know we've had a couple of weeks off, so breaking the succession is challenging to then kind of pick up steam with the engine as we kind of keep moving here and then we land. But remember with me, to put it simply, The covenant of redemption, what is it? I know you're asking. Great. So the answer is this. The covenant of redemption is an eternal agreement 
That, that's a critical piece as, you, as you're working through. What, what are we about to talk about for the next few minutes? The covenant of redemption. What, once more, what is the covenant of redemption? It is an eternal agreement, eternal agreement between the persons of the Trinity. So not between you and God, but within the Godhead. The, 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 the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So, so what is this covenant of redemption? It is an eternal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to redeem a fallen humanity. That's it in a nutshell. What is the covenant of redemption? That's it in a nutshell. But what is it that they eternally agree to? What is it that the Father within himself and the Spirit within himself and the Son within himself in perfect harmony and union in the Godhead? What is it that they agree to do in the redeeming of a fallen humanity? What are they agreeing? Each person according to function and purpose in this one great beautiful covenant of redemption. What, what is it that the Father is essentially agreeing to? Again, it is an eternal agreement. Agreeing what? The Father agrees to send forth the Son as a Savior and a mediator. That is what the Father has pledged. The Son then, in agreement with the Father, the Son agrees to be sent of the Father. The Father agrees to send the Son to be the Savior and the mediator of a people. The Son agrees with the Father to therefore be sent to be that mediator and that pledge. And the Spirit agrees to empower the mission of the Son and to apply its effects. This is the eternal agreement. If you would turn to Matthew just for a moment, we're going to kind of jump in a couple of different texts. But first, to look at Matthew where we see this, this, this covenantal pledge being fleshed out in a moment in our Lord's life. Turn to Matthew 3, if you would. This is where we see it in time. We're speaking about a pretemporal arrangement, a covenant of redemption, where we were not present for it. It is an eternal agreement between whom? Between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the members of the Trinity, to do what? To redeem a fallen humanity. But where do we see it in time? Not philosophically or simply theologically, but, but where do we see it in time that gives us a window into the activity of the Son and the Father and the Spirit in this one great work of redemption? A very small picture, again, what we'll come back to in a few moments, but I just want to introduce it by way of Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. There in Matthew 3, this is where we see this pretemporal covenant among the members of the Trinity to redeem a fallen humanity in time, a snapshot in time of it getting started is at our Lord's baptism. There, this is a rich, rich text for all of its significance of our Lord's baptism. Matthew 3, look at verse 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, again, we don't have time to get into the theology of baptism here, what's all occurring in baptism, but, but, the, but the large piece here is where we have to stay, just for sake of time. So you'll see what's occurring. So we can press, why was he baptized? What does his baptism signify? Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized... Immediately, he went up from the water. So, so the man of Nazareth, the Son of God, incarnate, verse 16, came up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. 
and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. This is what the Son incarnate sees as the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. You see, because so far, before we conclude then, what is the covenant of redemption but an eternal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to do what? To redeem a fallen humanity. What did the Father agree to do to send the Son to be the Savior and mediator of a people? What did the Son agree to do? To be sent. Here he is in his baptism. Agreeing to be sent. And then the Spirit agrees to do what? But empower the mission of the Son and to apply its effects. Immediately the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And that, 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 that third, the Father and the membership of the Trinity, verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven. So here's the Son and, and you have the Spirit and now a voice whom we know identifies as the Father. A voice from heaven said, this This Jesus, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, here in time, we see that the beginning of our Lord's ministry, the covenant of redemption is beginning to take shape. But we see it also, if you'll go back there to John, and we're going to come back to Matthew 3, and we're going to look at how Matthew 3 leads into Matthew 4 in an extremely significant way. But for now, let's jump over to John, if you would. But it was early, uh, just a few moments ago, it was read for you. But in John 17, because this is the other portion where it stands out to us so clearly of what we're dealing with here from Matthew, the, the Son and the Spirit and the Father, and then we see this covenant once again. In time, as our Lord refers to it in verses 1 through 5. If you're there in John 17, let me just read and then we'll move forward. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, what words? The words of, I have overcome the world. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you see? Whom you have sent. And this is what I did. In the sending forth of the Son. This is what the Son says I did. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, again, what was that work? And, and, and we work through the passage, and you see it in verse 6 through 8. What was the work that, that the Father had given the Son to do? I've done it. I've glorified your name on the earth, having accomplished the work that you, not randomness, but you gave me to do. Verse 6, I have manifested your name. To the people whom you have given me out of the world. That's what I've done. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know every that everything that you have given me 
uh, or everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. That is the accomplishment of the work of the Son, partly, in the high priestly prayer here in reference to the covenant of redemption. So what was the work specifically? Remember, we noted this a couple of weeks ago. If we were to define more clearly or more concisely, perhaps, what is the work that the Son has accomplished, the Father sent him to do? But it is to move Adam's offspring from death unto life. That's the work. That's the covenant of redemption. Sending forth the Son to do what? Be their Savior and mediator. Father, glorify me now. For I have glorified your name in the earth. I've accomplished the work. To, to, to do what? To move Adam's offspring from death to life. To change them from being people who hate God to people who now love and worship him. This is the work that the Son has accomplished. However, as we move forward this morning in this covenant of redemption, we cannot skip over. Indeed, it's critical that we acknowledge and work through for the next few moments how Jesus moved Adam's offspring from death unto life. That's so important because it isn't well wishes that got Adam's offspring from death unto life. And, and, and when we contextualize it to Adam's offspring, you know, as I speak, and together we share, that's us. So, so, so it, it matters tremendously that we pin down the biblical story, that we learn from it. How does he, though? So, so I've, I've done it, and, and the question that has to scream out to us is, how has he done it? How? Because remember, we ended last, a couple of weeks ago, um, by saying this, and I, I concluded this way with you, um, just to, to, to piece these sermons together, to jump over a couple of weeks and jump together and piece them together. We ended our time last in the Covenant of Redemption, part one, this way. The fact remains, this is how we concluded, that's where we pick up. The fact remains that you and I, you, have still broken the covenant of works. That, 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 that's the, the elephant in, in the room. You have still broken the covenant of works and are still due to face God as his enemy. So we're looking for a solution. So, so, so the fact remains, this truth is, is, is um, absolute. You, individual, me, by way of being human, born by natural generation from our first parents, federal head, Adam and Eve, in this relationship, in this covenant with God, by natural generation, you and I are offspring of Adam. Therefore, we inherit through that natural generation of the flesh, we are born into a condition of sinfulness. In other words, covenantally speaking, we are born covenant breakers. That is a fact by natural generation. So we're in this condition, and yet we find out that Jesus moves people from this broken covenantal condition into this other covenantal condition, one where they experience not wrath but grace. So you move from here to here. But the question here is how? How do you go from here to here? 
many, as we noted last time, are very happy to say it through faith. That's how I go from here to here through faith. But as we noted last time, we have to be extremely careful with that answer. There's a very critical nuance to be applied to the answer of faith. Because once again, note carefully, if all we had was faith, we'd still be in a whole host of trouble. That needs to matter to you. That's a distinction in your, in your, in your, in your Christian doctrine. As you're, as you're thinking through faith and you're thinking through, what is it? Are, am I a person of faith? Um, do all I need to have? Of course, none of you. I, I've cited songs from like the 80s before, and no one in here understands any of them. Um, I don't know why. I, I'm not that much far removed from people seven years ago. George Michael's faith, faith, faith. Anyone know what that even is? At any rate, he's not talking about covenantal theology. Nonetheless, the constant call of all you've got to do or persistently must ex exercise. And it kind of fleshes itself out in everybody being like, yeah, that, that, that's a good platitude for all of us to live by, have faith, whether you're talking about a relationship or not, whatever. The idea of being a person of faith, what should you have? Well, I just really think I need to get grounded in faith. I'm a person of faith. All this, the idea is, once again, what does that even mean? If all we have indeed is faith, 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 we're a whole host of trouble. That actually doesn't take you from here to here. You see, faith cannot save you. And the distinction is this. Only a person can save you in whom your faith must rest. That's a critical distinction. Faith, this nebulous thing, doesn't save anyone, doesn't deliver anyone, doesn't take anyone from death unto life. It doesn't. Faith does not do it. A person saves. It's the saving object of your faith. And the sole saving object of that faith, where that faith does come to rest and terminate, is none other, according to the biblical story, is none other than Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. He saves, not faith. So once again, we're at the question then, how then can Jesus, if he indeed is how we are saved, how can Jesus, if it's not my faith that takes me from here to here, is faith, but a person who takes me from here to here, how does he take me from here to here? How does he do so? That's what the biblical story has been leading up to all the way from when the skins were cut for Adam and Eve. The loincloths. The promise of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the woman's offspring that will crush a serpent's head. That has been leading us all the way to this point right here where we simply ask, how then does Jesus save? Great, glad you asked. That's how this is developing. That's the story of covenantal theology. How does he do so? So let us begin to ask it maybe covenantally in light of what we're pursuing is in the context of covenant theology. And let me say it this way then. What we're pursuing for the next few moments is this. How does, covenant, how does the covenant of redemption, which is our subject, how does the covenant of redemption help us, right? That's what we're in the end hopefully trying to do is be helpful. How does the covenant of redemption help us to understand the saving work of Jesus Christ?
That's the point. Not so that we learn some sort of theological construction at the end of the day, but that is important that our faith take shape, that our faith be doctrinally organized. That matters. It's not like, well, you know, you have some who care about this and some who care about that. It has to care about, we all have to care about that. It has to be doctrinally organized because that's the way the text is written. But in the end, it's not simply so that we can walk away and say our doctrine is organized and structured. In the end, it is to say, how does this doctrine organized and structured in Scripture help me or is here for my benefit to understand the saving work of Jesus Christ? So let's begin then for the next few moments. Begin by considering this. And I'm taking you all the way back to then the covenant of works. Whether you were here with us or or, or not, it'll be made plain to you, I'm sure. But think of it in these terms. When Adam disobeyed, because we're we're now beginning our pursuit to finding out how Jesus saves. How? So we're coming back here to Adam so that we will shed light on how Jesus saves. When Adam disobeyed and brought down the curse of the covenant of works, death, death. So when Adam disobeyed and brought down the curse of the covenant of works, whoever, this is the lingering story from Genesis all the way moving forward through types and shadows and stories and characters, it's leading you down a pathway to understand this and to to prime your pump as you read from Genesis all the way to Matthew is this, whoever was going to undo Adam's work of disobedience must do two things. Whoever it's going to be has to do two things. He must both remove the curse and earn the blessings. He must do these two things. For you, person, Christian, For your faith, for you person, prior to being a believer, for you person, to have your faith terminate or rest upon him, he must, to be your saving object, do two things in order that he then would be unto you a saving object, a savior who is Christ the Lord. In order for him to be that, the savior and mediator that the father sent for his people, in order to qualify that, he must do two things. He must remove the curse Remove it. And then also, earn the blessings. So, when we look at the entirety of Jesus' life as our Savior, and we look at it from the point of his virgin birth, and then we begin to study, and we've had a, a wonderful opportunity to study Luke's gospel for the last couple of years, and we did just that. It's taking it right from the, the, the nativity and, and, and the scene at, the, and at the, the manger, and then following all the way to the resurrection, the road to Emmaus. That beautiful life and porch that we have through Luke, that entirety, when we're looking at our Lord's entire life, we're principally looking at his life in two aspects to his one saving work. These two aspects that then kind of you could almost think of it, and, and I, I move my hands a lot, and maybe a lot of it just doesn't translate to you at all. It's more helpful for me. It's a mind picture. But maybe this one will be helpful for you, maybe. This would be, so you could think of it in, in, in spheres or, or, or halves. So, so you'd say this half 
is uh, needing to be combined with this half in order to have a whole, which is very straightforward. Everyone knows that. So then you'd look at it and say, okay, well, then this half is what, and this half is what, in order that we would see the entirety of the whole. What are the halves? What are these two principal pieces that make up his one complete saving work? They are what is considered to be his active obedience. So, so now you're thinking through, okay, because, right, because he's going to do two things. He has to remove the curse, take it, Adam brought it. So, so a savior, a person who's going to save, has to take the curse away, and then he has to positively bring forth the blessings. He has to do both of those. So, so, right, so then you have his saving work. As savior, you have circle, and in the, in the circle you have savior. And you're like, great, so it's comprised of two pieces. And this one is active obedience. And then this one is going to be passive obedience. And these two elements of obedience comprise the one work of a savior who is the sole object of your faith. Let's move forward. Consider what we mean by active obedience. I want to treat each of these then from the biblical story, active and passive obedience. Evangelicals tend to be uh, better uh, at understanding passive obedience. If I were to say to you, his, Jesus' is passive obedience, or you to think about what types of songs you sing most, do you think that you sing more about his active obedience, or do you think you sing more about his passive obedience? W- when, when you gather and you worship and, and, and you're going through the seasons in the calendar of the church, are you celebrating his passive obedience or his active obedience? What, what do we most often think of our Lord in his saving institution? What do we think of him as passively suffering on our behalf or actively living his life in obedience for us? I would say evangelicalism as a whole is far greater at speaking of its passive obedience. But it's critical we nail down his active obedience or the passive obedience lacks fulfillment. Consider then what I mean by active obedience. By active obedience, you're thinking in terms this way. Active obedience means Jesus' life of perfect, spotless, and wholehearted obedience to his Father. Uh, I'll, I'll read it a second time. This is what we mean by active, not passive. Active. This is the first shot across the bow. Active obedience, that without it, I cannot be saved. Jesus' life of perfect, spotless, and wholehearted obedience to his Father. With that thought, turn to Matthew 3, please. In Matthew 3... This is where we're going to see, again, this beginning, right at the very initial stages of our Lord's ministry, where upon his baptism, the Spirit descends to empower the Son, and the Father proclaims, this is my Son, in whom all redemption history rides. This is his act of obedience, and we have this significant picture of our Lord's act of obedience Beginning again, I'll begin in Matthew 3, 13, and I'm just going to read all the way through 4, 17. So stay with me and stay in the text. 
and see exactly what we're dealing with here in active and passive obedience, but we're tackling active obedience, whereby Jesus' perfect, spotless, and wholehearted obedience to the Father is on display. Matthew 13, uh, 3.13, I'll begin there. Let's jump right through it. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented this, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Do you, already, do you see the stroke of the text? Are you already putting on your glasses of how you're going to read this text? The fulfillment of all obedience. The fulfillment of all righteousness. Absolutely leaving nothing on the table. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized... This is the beginning, this is the be- leaving nothing undone, even to be baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit, but an eternal agreement that the Son would come, the Spirit in power, that the Father would send. The Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This, and no one else, this right here, this is my beloved Son. It is him. With whom I am well pleased. Now verse 1 of chapter 4. It's it's somewhat, and we can maybe make the argument, it's unfortunate that there's a chapter break. Because you're reading it together. That he's fulfilling all righteousness. That he's being sent of the Father, blessed of the Father, empowered by the Spirit. And Jesus Nazareth, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus... This is moving together. This is the Son in whom the Spirit is empowering for the work of redemption. Then He, Jesus, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. For what? To be tempted by the devil. By active obedience, we mean Jesus' life of perfect, spotless, and wholehearted obedience to the Father. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Strike number one. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you should strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written. By act of obedience, we mean Jesus' life of perfect, spotless, and wholehearted obedience to the Father. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him at a very high mountain and said, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and you worship me. Then Jesus, the offspring of the woman, he who is to crush the serpent's head, he who is to remove the curse, and to earn the blessing, said to him, 
be gone, Satan. Do you remember Romans 5? And Paul said there are two Adams. What the one Adam did was he never said, be gone, Satan. But the second Adam, the son in whom the father is well pleased and whom the spirit is empowering the covenant of redemption to save a people who are covenant breakers, said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. Who are they but a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, if you read 3 and 4 together, you see that through our Lord's baptism, what is it that he's doing in his baptism and fulfilling all righteousness, but that he is uniting himself to unrighteous covenant breakers. He is uniting himself to unrighteous covenant breakers in order that he might live and die in union with them. Do you wonder why? Why he united by way of baptism, identified as, as a federal head to covenant breakers, wherein then he was led into temptation for 40 days. Why? Why? Why was he baptized into union with covenant breakers, whereby he might live for them? So that his obedience is their obedience. Through his baptism, he unites himself in union to unrighteous covenant breakers in order that he might live and die in union with them. Why? So that his obedience is their obedience. This is captured in the hymn, uh, Glorious Day. That, 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 that's an example of singing of the active obedience of our Lord. And there are more, I'm sure. This just stands out to me. You recall what we sing in O Glorious Day, uh, the, 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 the hymn. Uh, um, it, it says this, and, and maybe it'll, it'll strike you now. Think of it this way. He says, living, do you remember? Living, he loved me. And before you go on to dying, he said, wait, wait. But living, he loved me. He united himself to me. And he lived the life before God. And Matthew 4, and all through his entire life, but it's highlighted for me in Matthew 4. 
He lived the life before God that I could not. And thereby, in his sinless perfection, he earned the righteousness that was required for all who live in the presence of God. He earned what was required for all who live in the presence of God. Think about it this way, just for a moment, in terms of active obedience, and then we'll cover his passive obedience and be done. But think about it for a moment this way. Maybe you have not before. Just let me put it before you. Maybe you have. Let me put forward to you that forgiveness of sins as a category, forgiveness of sins, of which we announce in the gospel, is announced to us in the gospel that that, that there is a forgiveness of, of your sins. Think about it in these terms for a moment. In the biblical story, covenantally speaking, forgiveness of sins is not enough. Right? Like, back to the old original picture, to go from here to here, the bridge, even if it be a person, it cannot be, it's not enough for it to be a pledge of your forgiveness, a, a, a pledge that he will forgive your sins. It's not enough. That would be half of it. Maybe So so remember that, and hopefully I can push that forward to you, that when you think about the great blessings of the Lord in your life and redemption and salvation, it means more to you than your sins are forgiven. You see, think about it just for a moment. If forgiveness of sins is all that you had, then you would be back in Eden with another shot at fulfilling the covenant of works. You'd be at ground zero. Maybe we would say, along with Adam in the garden, you're in a state of integrity before God. Do you see? Let's say you had a shot to go back to the garden in a state of integrity through forgiveness of sins, and you were to live out the covenant of works. Based on our only example, admittedly, of our past, how do you think the performance would go? Well, we need more than integrity. We need more than forgiveness. We need righteousness before God. You see, that is precisely what Jesus achieved in his act of obedience. Someone has to remove the curse, but somebody has to earn the blessings. If the curse is removed and you stand at ground zero, you still cannot enter in. You need to be righteous. And that righteousness will not arise from within you. It will come from outside of you. And that righteousness is precisely what Jesus achieved through his life of active obedience. He earned the blessings of the covenant. But as we said just for a moment, that if that was only half of the work, that is to forgive you, uh, see you forgiven of your sins, as the song continues, that second portion, living he loved me, And then, of course, the part that we triumphantly get at, which is absolutely important, but it's all wed together. Dying, he saved me. This is the double benefit of the covenant. There's added righteousness, and there's there's, uh, wrath, appeasement, and satisfaction. This is the double benefit that is brought to you if your faith does rest upon him as a sole object of your faith. 
the passive obedience, so the active obedience as outlined in Matthew 4, but entirety of his life, Matthew 4, we have the active obedience. There it is. We, we have righteousness. And then we have this, right? We have atonement. We have satisfaction. We have a Savior. Just briefly, what do we mean by passive obedience? This one, I think, will come to you much more easily than active obedience. But on passive obedience, we simply mean this. Passive obedience is his entire work of removing the curse by coming under all of its penalties in our place. Paul describes this. You don't have time to turn there. I don't have time to have you turn there. But let me just read for you Galatians 3, if you want to jot it down. It's a tremendous text there, speaking of our Lord's active and passive obedience. Paul describes passive obedience in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. He says this. You're, you're familiar with the text. If you hear it, just let it shower over you. This is what Paul proclaims to you, to me. Christ redeemed us. And then he, get, then, then he continues to, to, to tease that out very particularly. Because everybody would say immediately, amen. Christ redeemed us, amen. But, but, it, but, but it matters how that we honor him as Savior and mediator. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the curse. How did he redeem us? And this other element of from the curse of the law, how did he do so? By becoming a curse for us. Fulfilling all of its requirements and then laying down and receiving his curses. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, and, and, and this perhaps will, will flower in your mind a little bit more now that you've had a brief few moments on covenant theology, but let, let Paul here in Galatians, listen to how he speaks of the blessing that you're going to receive in Christ through faith. It, it, it's phenomenal. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Passively, he took the curse. Actively, living, he loved me. Dying, he took the curse passively and saved me. For it is written, it's, it, it's plain as day. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He did that. Why? So that in him, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. That was a long time ago. And it's here to all who have faith that rests upon him. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, he takes us from a covenant of works and by his active and passive obedience brings us into a covenant of grace. Listen to our Lord's words in John 10. This is my final text for us this morning. Just, just listen to the, to the words of this text in John 10. We cite it a few times in Luke. And now in this picture of active and passive obedience, whereby he lived a life to save me, to earn the covenant blessings. And he then laid down his life passively to receive of its curses, not earning them, passively submitting to them to become my one Savior and head. Our Lord's words in John 10, 17 verse 18. Listen to these words, please. He says, for this reason, 
The Father loves me. Do you see? The covenant of redemption is an eternal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to redeem a fallen humanity. The Father agrees to send a Son, a Savior, a Mediator. The Son agrees to be sent of the Father. The Spirit agrees to empower the mission and to apply its effects. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. To be clear, no one takes it from me. Do you see that? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now listen to this last statement. In light of covenant theology, our brief study, hear this final statement of verse 18. This charge I have received from my Father. This is why Jesus refers to his blood, as I mentioned to you a few moments ago, refers to his blood in that sign and seal of our covenant life with him through the table. This is why he refers to his blood as the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This blood of our Lord's active and passive obedience pays the penalty for breaking the covenant of works. Now for my conclusion, it's just brief. But we began to consider in the covenant of redemption we began by asking this, and hopefully we somewhat satisfied it. How do you experience, and I'm asking you this, hopefully you can identify it. I'm asking you, listener, this, in conclusion to our series. How do you experience, you listener, you Christian, how, you person, how do you experience mercy, grace, forgiveness, and steadfast love, and patience from a God who says in Exodus, I will by no means clear your guilt. How do you experience then? If, you, if, if, if God won't clear my guilt, how then will I experience mercy, grace, forgiveness, steadfast love, and patience from him? The answer is simply this. By union to his son, Jesus Christ. In him, I was punished. In him I was raised. In him I have righteousness. The answer of how God can show me mercy but not clear my guilt is that I'm in union to his son who lived and died for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tremendous layers of the gospel that are given for our attention, for our understanding, for our growth, to feed and nourish our soul. 
We thank you for this tremendous pre-temporal covenant that you, a God of grace and mercy, of your own initiative, took to save a fallen humanity. That you would send forth your son without our input and how you could do it and what you could do for us, but of your own love, of your own mercy, of your own grace, that you would conceive of an eternal plan of saving us, a fallen people, by sending forth a son. Savior, we praise your holy name for agreeing to be sent, enduring the incarnation, being made lower than the angels, to be made like us in every way, that you might redeem us from the law, that you might remove our guilt, and you might earn our blessings. And all of that to be imputed to us through a faith that comes to rest upon you. Spirit of God, we praise you for applying the effects of the Son to the hearts of his people. For whom all he died, indeed all will be raised. This too is of a sovereign pleasure and grace, a regenerating gift that we've come to believe your story. We've come to believe our own story of guilt and condemnation, culpability, and yet a grace that is offered to us freely. Father, I pray for each one here that their faith might be birthed in them, that you'd give them faith if there is faith that is not present, that be birthed in regenerating grace and come to immediately rest and terminate upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us all as we hear of the gospel once again, the great double benefits given to us, we would be people of thanksgiving and gratitude. Moving as with Heidelberg Catechism from guilt to, gra from guilt to grace to gratitude. Motivate our lives by your mercy. Bring forth your fruit as we are connected to you as our vine. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. I encourage you to take another moment in your seat.